it would make sense for companies to think about how they could proactively begin to mitigate any potential concerns that commerce could have. There are a couple of advantages to doing this early and even before a subpoena or enforcement matter is initiated. It could, for example, allow the company to essentially choose its medicine in a way that might be more commercially feasible than would otherwise be demanded by commerce in kind of a, a more passive posture. And it could also potentially avoid ICTS enforcement review altogether if commerce comes, takes a preliminary look and decides that actually the national security concerns that commerce thought would be present have already been addressed in a way that's satisfactory. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of All Things Investigations. Today, we have double trouble because I have Tyler Grove and John Hen, and they jointly wrote a paper that, frankly, was in an area I was not aware of, but I think every white-collar practitioner, every corporate compliance officer, and every business executive needs to be aware of this. So, gentlemen, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome, and thanks so much to both of you for taking the time to visit with me on this podcast today. Thanks, Tom. Good to be back. So could I ask you to tell us a little bit about your professional backgrounds? And Tyler, I'll start with you. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Tom. So my name is Tyler Grove. I'm a partner here at Hughes, Harvard, and Reed. I practice in our firm's international trade practice group, specializing in sanctions, export controls, and foreign direct investment review. John? My name is John Hannon. I'm an associate here at Hughes, Harvard. I work with Tyler and the international trade group work on export controls and sanctions, have a hand in a little bit of commercial litigation. And at my prior law firm, I worked in the anti-corruption space. Well, I'm an anti-corruption lawyer, so uh, always good to hang out. Jen, she wrote an article on something called the IT Supply Chain Security Rule. And before I read this article, I was not aware of this, but I think it's something, as I said in the introduction, uh, every business executive and compliance professional need to know about. But what led maybe to write this article, starting with what was this rule and where did it come from? So this is the Information Communications and Technology Services Rule, or the ICTS rule, as it's known by the Commerce Department, which is the agency that is responsible for administering and enforcing the rule. It's really a relatively new set of regulations, so it's compliance officials and officers should really be getting in on the ground floor with this rule um, now. It authorizes the Secretary of Commerce to do a few different things. Very similar to CFIUS, it authorizes commerce to review transactions that involve property or services that are subject to the jurisdiction of the U.S. that come from any foreign country that's deemed a foreign adversary, which includes China and Russia. And that's initiated or completed after the rule was published on January 19th, 2021. 
and that involved one or more of certain specified categories of products of these known ICTS products. The scope of the role is it's pretty broad and it extends to things involving, for example, internet connected software, data hosting, cloud services, networking equipment, internet connected cameras, and potentially drones as well. The rule itself, the idea for it has really been around for a few years now. It started off under the Trump administration under some concerns that our so-called foreign adversaries could be using some of these products to gather intelligence and otherwise engage in malign activities. Pursuant to an executive order that was signed by President Trump, the Commerce Department actually issued the first proposed version of these rules all the way back in late 2019. It was actually stayed in proposed form for a few years. And on the very second to last day of the Trump administration, the Commerce Department issued the final version of the rules. So there was some question as to whether or not the Biden administration would allow these to become law, whether they'd make changes to the rules. But so far, they, the Biden administration has largely allowed these regulations to become effective, largely in the form that the Trump administration Commerce Department had drafted. So, Tyler, let me pick up on your last point, or perhaps a little more generally. We've had the chance to visit before on a couple of different topics. And when I do visit with you, I hear a lot of consistency from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, either in terms of rule promulgation or investigations or enforcement action. Would this rule be consistent with what we've seen in other areas of that sort of nonpartisan following along, if I can use that phrase? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think across the board, we've seen a shared concern for the Chinese government and its role in influencing certain businesses that are engaging in transactions in the United States and with U.S. persons. And so I think this is definitely an extension of that. What powers does this give to the Commerce Department? And could you, one of you guys, perhaps compare and contrast it with CFIUS? So... This rule does grant similar powers to the Commerce Department that are enjoyed by CFIUS to review transactions and require mitigating action up to and including unwinding certain transactions if national security concerns are identified. Our understanding is that the personnel staffed at Commerce who are assigned to this rule and its implementation have significant CFIUS experience, and so they are likely to draw from CFIUS procedures and guidance in applying this rule. But there are some significant differences between the ICTS and CFIUS regimes. So first, CFIUS regime allows at-risk companies to proactively seek review and clear their transactions. And although there is a proposed licensing procedure for this ICTS regime, it has not become effective yet. As, as Tyler mentioned, this rule itself was sitting in, in a sort of limbo, a rulemaking limbo for some years, and that licensing regime remains limbo. Secondly, CFIUS is an interagency process that requires consensus among various agencies, and sometimes those agencies have different views. And there is an interagency process built into the ICTS rule, but really these reviews are within Commerce's wheelhouse. It may refer to other agencies, but it is the Secretary of Commerce who is empowered to make decisions. And so commerce, this one agency, has a much stronger role under these regulations and is uh, likely able to exert much more influence than, say, a given agency like Treasury under the CFIUS regulations. And finally, regarding the scope of what 
these various regimes are looking at. Uh, commerce is looking for visibility into perhaps individual products, but really more broadly, the concern is with the product line or even the business of target companies in the United States. This is not a review of really a, a discrete transaction, like a discrete investment that, that you might see under, under CFIUS. And so concretely, there are a lot of different things that commerce could be looking at up and down the supply chain. And, and in particular, these investigations could, could involve third parties, both at home and abroad. Will there be a regulatory regime created by this rule? Yes, there is a regulatory regime, and it's described at a newly created part of the Code of Federal Regulations. It's at uh, 15 CFR 7, and many of the powers are enumerated, the procedures are described, the roles of various agencies, consultative and otherwise, are described, and as are Commerce's own authorities. Tyler, let me ask you, have you typically seen the Department of Commerce handle these, what I'm going to call national security issues? Is this new for the Department of Commerce? Obviously, there are other departments in the U.S. government that you work with that, that more closely and more rigorously regulate uh, relations with foreign countries. But is this something that's in Commerce's wheelhouse or is this new? Well, I think increasingly over the past few years, Commerce has been taking on more of a sanctions-like foreign policy role in terms of putting different companies on some of its blacklists, like the entity list the military end user list, imposing some of the new semiconductor controls on China last October. And so I think increasingly commerce has been taking on more of a national security component in some of the work that it does, especially the Bureau of Industry and Security, which is responsible for administering the export control regulations. Interestingly here, it's actually the Office of the Commerce Secretary and not necessarily BIS that is responsible for administering the ICTS rule. And so because of that, we have seen some of the, the folks staffing this, as John mentioned, come from the CFIUS side, more so than the export control side. But I think within the agency, there's likely to be probably a fair amount of interagency communication and alignment on some of these national security policy concerns. How do you anticipate this is going to impact trade, certainly with China and Russia, but to the extent we still have trade with Cuba and North Korea, will it impact those countries, which I think are still perceived to be enemies of the United States as well? I mean, the, the rule is very early in the enforcement process right now. And so we really haven't seen any noticeable effect on trade with China and to a lesser extent Russia. I think as to the extent commerce decides to bring more enforcement actions and really up enforcement of the rule, as we think may be likely, I think we could see some impact there. In particular, I, I'm not sure the enforcement itself will have much of a direct impact, but I think much like with sanctions, there could be some indirect impacts in the form of some third-party partners in the United States refusing to engage in transactions that may present little to no risk of ICTS enforcement, but they may be concerned for reputational reasons or otherwise and go beyond what the regulations themselves require and refuse to engage in transactions with some of these companies from these so-called foreign adversary jurisdictions. Because of the newness of this rule, we can't really look to any precedent or direct commentary yet, but are you sensing any hints from commerce? Are you sensing the direction or even something that if someone picks up the phone and calls you guys after this and say, look, we really like to be ahead of this, 
or are you going to look at other types of regulatory slash enforcement regimes that we mentioned, such as perhaps CFIUS for guidance? So there's not much that's in the public domain, but there's enough to make some preliminary observations about how commerce is going about this and what the profile of targets might look like. In 2021, around the time that the rule took effect, commerce publicly acknowledged that it had sent out administrative subpoenas to Chinese companies that potentially fell within the rule. And both press releases were explicit that they were issued to support these sorts of they didn't use the term ICTS rule reviews, but it was they were issued under that issued to support reviews of the underlying authority. You can see that there's a bit of evasiveness and ambiguity in these releases, but it was clear that they were targeting Chinese companies with these sorts of information gathering requests. It wasn't clear if these Chinese companies were under a formal review. Beyond those subpoenas, in January 2022, there was a reporting by Reuters that there was a formal review ongoing by commerce of Alibaba, the Chinese e-commerce company. And then another press outlet reported in March 2022 that the Chinese ride-sharing company DD Chuxing Technology was also under an ICTS review. Not much more on that in the public domain. We've seen in its most recent budget that commerce has requested approximately $36 million to hire 114 positions dedicated to ICTS administration and enforcement. So it looks like commerce is going to have the horses to carry out more reviews, either pushing forward the reviews of the companies that are already reportedly under review or targeting new companies. But it does seem like there will be money behind earnest enforcements in the near future. That's certainly one way to tell when a department is very serious about enforcement, when they significantly or get a big budget and have a number of positions. So that tells us something now about the seriousness of how commerce will take this. What kind of counseling or advice are you giving your clients or potential clients at this point? Is it be aware and let's wait and see what's some guidance. Let's be proactive. Let's put some policies and procedures in place to alert ourselves. If something comes up, would it go so far as to be something that we would want to disclose to commerce or what guidance are you giving at this point? So I think at this point, we really are advising companies that are at risk to try to be proactive, think about ways that they could get ahead of potential ICTS enforcement action. And probably the very first place to start there is to conduct a risk assessment where a company would look at their products, at the supply chain for those products, try to identify any that might fall within the scope of this ICTS rule. And then for any that are within scope, try to identify any potential national security concerns that commerce may have, relying in part on any public statements from commerce, any sort of press releases or statements from some of these conferences that these commerce folks attend to try to identify where the most likely points of concern are to be. And then based on that risk assessment, I think the next step would be to form a response plan so that all of these internal stakeholders within an at-risk company kind of know who is responsible for what in the event that a subpoena or an enforcement matter is initiated against the company. And this could include designating internal resources, such as from legal or compliance, could be technical subject matter experts within the company that are most likely to know the ins and outs of the products likely to be the subject of review. It could also be designating some third-party assistance too from people like specialized external law firms, 
government relations firms and public relations firms. After that, then I think it would make sense for companies to think about how they could proactively begin to mitigate any potential concerns that commerce could have. There are a couple of advantages to doing this early and even before a subpoena or enforcement matter is initiated. It could, for example, allow the company to essentially choose its medicine in a way that might be more commercially feasible than would otherwise be demanded by commerce in kind of a, a more passive posture. And it could also potentially avoid ICTS enforcement review altogether if commerce comes, takes a preliminary look and decides that actually the national security concerns that commerce thought would be present have already been addressed in a way that's satisfactory. If commerce eventually releases a licensing mechanism, as John mentioned, it may make sense for these companies to also consider what products, if any, would make sense to try to proactively push in front of commerce. Doing so could control the timing of an ICTS review because these things, as most enforcement actions, come at the worst possible time if you don't have any control over them. And so doing so voluntarily would at least allow a company to kind of get its eggs and ducks all in a row and be able to anticipate the likely issues to come up and have the information at hand. So it's not such a reactive posture if it waits for commerce to initiate a review. And more broadly, I think companies that are potentially at risk should just be monitoring the internet and other resources for potential information and guidance on this rule and how commerce intends to practically apply the rule. As we mentioned a couple of times already, I mean, this rule is very much in the early stages right now. And so it's almost certain that additional guidance will be forthcoming in the near future. It's also possible that commerce could tweak these regulations as it starts to implement them and, and figures out where they might need to make some changes here and there. And so that would be something for companies to closely monitor and then feedback into the risk assessment and response plan. Now, let me pick up on one point you raised a little bit earlier, and that's BIS located in the Commerce Department. In my last corporate position, I was also export control director. So I had an occasion to deal with BIS. And they were very different than the Department of Justice. You could pick up the phone, you could call them, you could have a discussion. I don't want to say off the record, but you could at least get some advice. And it was a collaborative as aspect. Certainly they would regulate when called upon to do so. But they also helped counsel me in trying to research and, and wade through some of the licensing requirements. Do you anticipate that type of sort of regulatory touch on this initiative as opposed to something like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act that the Department of Justice prosecutes where you really can't call up and say, give questions. There's an opinion release procedure, but that's very different than the informal process I'm talking about. Is that kind of in the nature of the relationship you like yourself have with the Department of Commerce? It's hard to tell. I mean, I think at the preliminary stages, the Secretary's Office of Commerce may be likely to be willing to give some of that informal guidance as they're kind of trying to find their footing and the companies they're looking at are also trying to find like how these regulations apply to them. I do know that there is some difference between the clientele of BIS and the clientele of the secretary's office that's implementing these rules. BIS is dealing mostly with U.S. companies and they're trying to help those companies stay compliant while also conducting international business. And so I think BIS probably has more of a policy incentive to give the sort of informal training and advice and guidance to help keep those U.S. companies compliant. Versus here, I mean, these are under the ICTS rule. It's really looking at companies that are headquartered or sending products from so-called foreign 
adversary jurisdictions. And so I think from that perspective, there could be a slight difference in the policy rationale for giving some of this informal guidance, perhaps the tone behind any guidance that they're willing to give. That being said, there's a whole another category of companies that could be subject to this rule. And that's third parties that might do business with some of these companies in foreign adversary jurisdictions that might not be the target of the rule themselves, but they could receive subpoenas to gather information necessary for commerce to basically build a case and decide if there's any national security concerns from a transaction. And so to the extent those companies are companies here in the US, for example, I do think that the secretary's office is probably more likely to be more willing to give informal guidance and help those companies comply with some of these ICTS regulations. If I could just add to that. So I would note that the request for new hiring, the request for budget, and then the new positions appear to be linked to BIS. So it is possible that formally uh, any representative of commerce who's reaching out to a company, say in the framework of a subpoena request, is at BIS. But I, I think the underlying posture that Tyler described is probably the more important issue than whether someone is within the secretary's office or BIS. I think I think the clientele and types of target companies may dictate the regulatory uh, attitude. Gentlemen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us for our next episode. And before we leave, if our listeners wanted more information on any of the topics we touched on, what would be the best place for them to go? They can certainly go to our website. That's hughesubber.com. We publish client alerts for any significant regulatory developments there, and they can sign up to receive those on our website as well. We're also very active on social media, including LinkedIn and Twitter, and any client alerts or other you know significant news articles or developments that we're aware of, we typically will post to those social media accounts as well. John, any, anything to add? Yeah, I would also add that while there's no official commerce website on ICTS rule enforcement. You can monitor the ICT supply chain news on the commerce website, which will definitely carry developments in real time. Well, gentlemen, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit me. I also wanted to thank you for taking the time to write this article because I learned a lot and I'm sure the clients and potential clients of Hughes Edward Reed did as well. I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you, Tom. Thanks very much, Tom.